since I started, I've built in that village a library and a kindergarten and a computer center and have paid for several scholarships for the children who finish high school. I'm very interested in, uh, I, I feel like both Finland and Poland are sort of this boundary where east, east meets west. We take Polish music and Polish dances and we teach Canadian audiences because that's, that's, where, that's where we feel this music is needed. There's a dance form in Finland called Polska. The dance originated in Poland, came up through, uh, through Sweden and, and then into Finland. that come to mind? Not a whole lot, no. Probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland? Sausages. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Jazz. I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 51st episode of Polcast. Frédéric Chopin, Frédéric Chopin, the best-known Polish composer, loved all over the world, a child prodigy, completed his musical education and composed all his earlier works in Warsaw, before leaving Poland, which he did at the age of 20 less than a month before the outbreak of the November 1830 uprising against the three powers that partitioned Poland in 1795, Russia, Prussia, and Austro-Hungary. And one of the pieces he composed became an inspiration for all our jingles. That's right. Chopin settled in Paris. During the last 18 years of his life, he gave only some 30 public performances, preferring the more intimate atmosphere of the Salon. He died in Paris in 1849 at the age of just 39, probably of tuberculosis. His grave is in the famous Paris cemetery, Père Lachaise. When he passed, Chopin's eldest sister, Ludwika Jędrzejewicz, complied with his request his heart was extracted from his body before the funeral, and she took it back to Poland in a jar of alcohol, most likely French cognac. Chopin's sister hid the package under her coat to avoid border officers' questions about the body part she was carrying, and was able to smuggle it to the Holy Cross Church in Warsaw, where it was buried beneath a small monument. Given Chopin's popularity in his native Poland, the monument to his heart quickly became a rallying point for Poles. During World War II, the Nazis, knowing the power the composer's legacy held over the people, stole the heart, as well as outlawed playing his music. Fortunately, after the war, they gave Chopin's heart back to Poland, and it's still in the same church in Warsaw.
they met w lesie, which in Polish means in the woods, playing music in a Canadian forest at the folk camp organized by Cosa Collective. They loved each other's music and created a unique combination of European styles. Their leader is a Polish ethnomusicologist, Ewelina Ferenc, an experienced folk musician and a world music singer who has sung in about 20 languages. She came to Canada from Poland in 2015. She has attracted musicians with various roots, Finnish, Irish, Algerian, who now play in the group called Polki Village Band, charming Canadians with traditional Polish folk music, songs and dances, spanning different regions. Evelina, you have been traveling so much. You traveled around Europe, Middle East, Asia, Morocco, even in India. Why did you go to all these places? Uh, I always wanted to travel not to the West, but to the East. And I started from Ukraine. I spent there one year and then I decided to go a little bit further. So me and my friend, we decided to go hitchhiking to Georgia in the Balkans. Turkey. Before, when I was studying at the university, me and my friends, uh, we went to India. That was my first time in 2007. And then after a few years, I, I wanted to go back there because I really liked it. India is great. It's, it's wonderful, beautiful. So yeah, so always East, never West. And then you came to Canada. You came just for two months, but you've stayed a long time. It's your third year? Yeah. So what um, made you come and what made you stay? Um, I had friends here that I met in Ukraine. They were, they were Ukrainian Canadians. They invited me for their, uh, their folk camp. It's like a one week of um, music and crafts and everything related to folk culture. Then I came and I met so many amazing artists and musicians. And then I decided to prolong my staying. Uh, and then I met my husband. I, I'm sure for you, as an ethnomusicologist, this place must be really some some kind of a dream place, isn't it? It's great, for sure, because you can collaborate with musicians from all over the world. In Toronto it's great because there's so many musicians from different backgrounds and different countries, and everybody's really open to collaborate. So you can sing your own music. And people will accompany you with uh, instruments not from your own culture. So that's really interesting that such collaborations are possible here. And in Poland, everybody's Polish. So this multicultural mix doesn't exist. You brought to this country and to these musicians that you play with Polish music. So it's a Polish traditional music. And right now in Poland, there is this big folk uh, revival. So young people like I am or my, my friends start to be interested in this music so they go to the villages they meet uh, village musicians or village singers they learn from them and then it's very popular there right? but you go there and there are people playing instruments and other people are dancing and there's some dance instructors who show how to dance to that so, so it's it's becoming more and more popular and when i was studying Ethnomusicology in Warsaw. I met some of those people and I became more interested in that and more involved. And I even started to do dance events in my region in Silesia. 
friend of mine left, and I came here. And at the beginning, I wasn't even doing Polish music. I was singing with Ukrainian groups. But then I, I realized that actually Polish folk music is the music I know the most. Cool. And I found musicians that really like it too, and they they decided to play this music with me, and we started the group. And now they even want to go to Poland with me to learn from all those old village uh, musicians how to play this music or even share something we know from here that they don't know because i'm still in touch with uh, polish bands i have so many polish friends in poland who are in the bands like that so i hope that when i will come with this band here with this with these people from here that everybody will be so open to that and people won't be surprised that canadian musicians are playing polish folk Mm -hmm. music Tell me also how this music is received here when you play Polish music, not to Poles, but to Canadians. It's better than when we play to Polish people. Like last um, Sunday, we played in Owen Sound. It's two hours from Toronto. There were 12 bands because it was like a showcase. And we were only one from this part of the world. All other bands were like Canadian folk groups or bluegrass or even rock. So we were different than other bands. And when we started to play, people started to dance. And then they were coming to us. They said that, oh, we hope to see you during the festival this summer. So, yeah, people really like it because they don't they don't know it. This is something unusual for them. And because we play this music, it's I, I, th- I think it, like it's happy and upbeat. People like it, no matter uh, what's their background. And you organize all kinds of events, right? It's not its not just your shows, but you also do, do these polka events. You teach people to play it, you, you do workshops. Yeah. We also want to do those dance events that I mentioned before uh, that are happening in Poland. We want to do it here. But here the biggest sense is to make them together with other groups of other backgrounds. So like last year, we did one dance event with Hungarian and Slovak and... Uh, Latvian groups so it was like a collaboration when we all shared our dances we all learned our dances and it was really amazing more than 100 people came and yeah there were like four bands even five cultures because we also taught Ukrainian dances so that was something so we want to start building community of Eastern European and Central European folk dancing so that's yeah, that's the plan. We also have other things uh, this year coming up, like we want to record CD and summer festivals, uh, Canadian folk summer festivals. That's our goal to, to introduce this music to the completely new audience. We take Polish music and Polish dances, and we teach Canadian audiences because that's that's where that's where we feel this music is needed. I love this thing that you met in the forest. <laughs> Tell us yeah. about the forest and about the tree that became a harp. Oh, right. So, yeah, that's how me and Mari, the, the, the guy who plays cello and cymbal, and that's how we met. Uh, we met at Folk Camp, the, the, the Ukrainian group that I mentioned before. They organize this camp once a year in the middle of the forest. And it's called Folk Camp. When I when I came, I met Mari and I met Tristan. That was like the first day I came to Canada. It had to be something. It had to mean it had to mean something. Yeah, so we spent a week in the forest, uh, just with musicians 
and artists. We did art, we did music, and we were sharing songs and dances. Mari is a luthier, so he builds instruments, and he decided to build a tree harp on that tree. And then I was walking one day, one morning, and then I saw Mari playing on that harp, and I started to sing something to that, like improvise. And then we realized that actually that could work. And that's how our collaboration started. La, 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 Village Band played at the concert at the Fregatta restaurant in Mississauga, organized to contribute to the 26th global fundraising campaign of the organization that we featured in episode 50, the Great Orchestra of Christmas Charity. I spoke to two non-Polish members of the band who love and play Polish folk music, Mati Palonen and Tristan Murphy. Uh, my name is Tristan Murphy. I play accordion and trumpet in Polkey Village Band. And how did you get to play that in that band? Why Poland? Why well, Polish? I've been interested in traditional music from all over the world. Um, before, prior to playing in Polkey Village Band, I was part of a community called Balfolk, which is based in Toronto, um, which is more Western traditional, Western European traditional music, but it's it's a mix of everything, similar to. Um, to Toronto in general but uh, it was through that community that I met Evelina and um, she was very uh, she has a very powerful voice she has a very powerful charisma about her which is very uh, exciting as a musician uh, my interest is just playing with people who I think are great musicians right. and are just really inspiring to play with. And so Evelina, she brings the Poland to us, and we're kind of, uh, at least in my case, I'm more of a tourist in this kind of... But do you, do you have any feelings about the music itself? Like, is it different? Is it special for you in any way? Absolutely. I've noticed, because I my background as a musician was more in rock music, um, but I've just begun, through playing with Evelina and playing with Polki, begun to notice... The, the stylistic differences in, in Polish music in particular, whereas when I first came on board with this band, so many of the songs would throw me for a loop. I'd be very lost in Polish music. But now, when we learn a new traditional song, um, it, things just start to click, because you, once you get into the, the feel and the style of Polish music, it, it starts to, even though there's many different styles, you get a bit more familiar with it as you go on. So there's like a like a common thread. There's a th common thread, I'd say. Yeah, yeah just in the, I I don't my vocabulary in terms of music theory is limited to to explain it, but uh, there's something going on with Polish music in terms of the style of melodies and and chord progressions that is very unifying in in that right. realm of the world. And what's your ethnic background? Yeah, I was born in Canada, but my um, both my grandfathers are from Ireland. Um, and then there's there's more Irish farther back as well. Uh, so I 
had really no connection to Poland, but playing the accordion definitely. If you ever want to play Polish music or just get involved in in these Eastern European communities, just pick up the accordion and you will naturally gravitate towards it. I think it something about that instrument, it just it really connects with that music. And how did this uh, this amazing combination of the accordion with the trumpet, which is so special, like you're so special, why, how did that happen? Uh, well, I, I, I'm not, it's not confirmed that I'm the only one in the world who does that. I'm sure there are many different versions of that idea. But I started playing the trumpet in school um, but it's not a solo instrument. I wanted to be able to perform solo, uh, so that's why I picked up the accordion, which is a lot better for performing solo, but I didn't want to give up the trumpet. I still love the trumpet. So I found a tiny little hand-sized trumpet that I could play with one hand, and then the accordion, you can still carry a rhythm and, and wow. chords with the other hand, so that's why I started playing by myself. Okay, yeah. thanks a lot. Maddie Polanin. And you're Finnish. Yes. Okay, so tell me how you got into this band and why you with the Finnish roots are interested in Polish music. I've been playing Finnish folk music for 10 years and that got me interested in my what my main instrument is, a Finnish instrument called kantala. So it's a string instrument similar to a psaltery, so it's uh, basically it has 15 strings and uh, I play the cymbale in this band, which is uh, hammered, but the cymbale is is plucked or or strummed with the, with the hands. And so uh, I met Evelina actually through a, an organization called Folk Camp. Um, we were both instructors there, and uh, at Folk Camp I actually happened to install a cantola-like uh, string structure into a hollow tree, <coughs> and uh, and so. Evelina and I really connected musically kind of through that moment through the uh, Finnic Baltic and, yeah. and Slavic music. Um, so kind of the, the first tunes we started playing together were, were actually Baltic. But also because I um, am a, a musician of Finnish background, I became interested in the music, the Slavic-influenced music uh, from Karelia and Ingria, which is near St. Petersburg. Um, this then got me interested in Ukrainian music and so uh, a lot of the... Just one step to Poland. Yeah, okay. as, as the music of different regions start to make sense to you, then, then you, you, you yeah. learn the tunes. Mm-hmm. So what, what, do you, what do you say about Polish music? Like, how, how does that feel to you? Uh, so interestingly enough, if you go the other way, I, I've described the, uh, the eastern route towards Poland, but there's actually a western route also. There's a dance form in Finland called Polska. So as the name suggests, we, we believe that the, the, the dance originated in Poland came up through uh, through Sweden and and then into Finland uh, when back when Finland was controlled by Sweden uh, the the dance then if you listen to Polskas from Sweden and Norway you'll notice that the rhythms are just like the Polish Oberek Mazurek but just slower I'm very interested in the in the Polish music to because it is is the uh, 
the same interesting rhythms to me. And of course, all the all the songs that we play are, are dance pieces. Did playing in this band and playing Polish music make you interested in the country itself? I'm very interested in. Uh, I, I feel like both Finland and Poland are sort of this boundary where east, east meets west. But, uh, my plan is to go to Poland for before Christmas and then Finland for, for after Christmas. this unique band and their music, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. This fairy tale-inspired warped building houses restaurants, shops, and even a radio station. Located in Sopot, Poland, it is a popular landmark for tourists and photographers. Built in 2004 by the design team of Szotyński and Żalewski, this 4,000 square meter building is part of the so-called resident shopping center. The inspiration for this unusually shaped building came from Polish fairy tale illustrations by Jan Marcin Szancer, whom I loved, and Per Dalberg. The building is referred to as Krzywydomek, which translates to English as Crooked House. It looks as though it was warped by a person playing with Photoshop. Tourists are often hesitant to enter the vertical-inducing entrance. Sopot is located in the northern part of Poland, on the shore of the Baltic Sea. If you travel all the way down south to Zakopane on Poland's southern border, you can find something equally weird, an upside-down house. So, is there anything equally interesting in Warsaw in the center of Poland? Yes. The world's narrowest house, which offers four foot wide living space. families who live there to find more ways to help the children and the community. They need many things. They live together, cook together, and struggle to find ways to survive. 
facing things like daily threats of disease and being kicked off government land. She lives in Japan, with which she feels very close spiritual connection, and has devoted her life to art and helping those in need, the two great passions which she has successfully connected to change other people's lives. Sylvia Beauchamp believes that helping others doesn't have to mean creating huge organizations that need lots of money to operate. Her vision was to set up the Chiki Children's Charity, a small organization which would empower local people in Asia and Africa through education, literacy, better quality of life and local initiatives. We reach Sylvia in Japan. Tell me your story, your life story. I was born on the Baltic Sea in Poland, like on, in a small town called Elbląg near Gdańsk. And with my mom and then my real father, it was tough times. Like they... They had trouble. He was a sailor and he, I think, got in trouble with the law. And she decided to move with me to Germany. And we lived in Germany for two years. I was only like five at the time. So I, leaving Poland for me was like leaving my grandmother and my grandfather because that's all I really knew of them. We were in Germany until about 1982. And then I moved with her to Canada. She got a visa. And then we landed at the Pearson airport and she didn't really have a place to go from there. So they attached us to a German tour group. And then we just started from there from scratch with two suitcases, just me and my mom. I was about almost eight and, um, she worked really hard. We lived on top of, um, like a delicatessen and my braids always smelled like sausage. So I would be teased and bullied at school and like for being poor and my mo- my mom got a communion dress for me from like Goodwill and like I had one teddy bear we slept on the floor and she made friends with this um wonderful woman a lifelong friend and her husband um has a furniture company and he's Jewish he has actually the the number from the holocaust on his arm and he became like an uncle to me. And when he saw how we lived, he came with a truckload of furniture and gave me a bunch of furniture and I had a a bed at the age of eight. And I was really happy. And I learned English because I was speaking Polish and German only. And I went to like a few elementary schools and my mom got remarried in Chicago to um, Janusz Harczuk. He paints the icons And then uh, we lived in Toronto, and I was raised in Toronto. I had quite, you know, a stable life from that point on. But in my blood, I just felt kind of like kind of a nomad or a gypsy or like a traveler, you know. So as soon as I finished university um, and got my fine arts degree, I I moved to to Mexico for six months. um, And I was working as a teacher, trying to feel out. I felt like naturally like a teacher and like an artist. So I, I was painting at the time and also teaching English. And I loved connecting English with um, art and teaching poor people. And so then I came back to Toronto and, uh, and then I had to pay off my student debt. So I didn't, I looked around at my friends and they were paying it off for like a really long time. And I said, no, no, I'm going to pay this off real quick. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. But then 
a friend suggested I find a job in, in Tokyo. And I said, okay, why not? So I went online. I found a job in Tokyo that was full-time. I went through the teacher training program with this company. And I landed a job that was quite good and stable right downtown Tokyo in Shibuya near Shinjuku. And I lived there for several years. And I really felt a connection with Japan. I, I loved being there. I have a biological mother in Toronto who gave birth to me. But Japan is my spiritual mother. You, you take a lot from Japan, right? Like, I mean, mm -hmm. it's not just a country for you. There's a lot more. No, no it's like a nest. Like a place where a bird goes to live and, and be held and nurtured and be fed and, and held. I've never felt so held in my life. Do you feel <laughs> Japanese? I'm pretty sure I have, if you believe in such things, reincarnation. I probably was a geisha in a past life. I live, I've been to Kyoto about five times in my life. And every time I go, I kind of know the names of the streets before I turn on them. Like I, I already know what I'm going to see. So I feel like I've already been there. And last year in October, I went to Kyoto and I had such weird experiences with the geishas. And I was invited into secret quarters where no, but no, no foreigner would ever go or be invited. And I was sitting with the Michael-sans and the geishas, and then we, these things cost thousands of dollars, but I was with some famous artist and the owner of like five geisha houses, which is incredible for me. And I was just honored to be there. And I watched and I just soaked up all of their culture. And I knew like, it almost felt like natural I, I understood it. And that's why I paint geishas. And that's why I paint them in my own style. And so my paintings always have a Japanese feel to them. And when I was making all this money and paying off my student loans, I was really proud of myself because it was the first time I was really, really independent and just depending on myself. And I learned a lot about life and who I am in this world. And um, the roof came off and I started thinking about how I want to represent myself in this world. And after I paid off my student loan, I had all this money. <laughs> My friends were like, do you want to buy a condo in Toronto and like settle down? And I said, no, I think I'm just going to go to Laos and um, adopt a village. Why there? Okay. Well, I did my research. I checked Cambodia and Vietnam and Thailand and all these other countries in Southeast Asia. Laos had the lowest literacy rate in Asia. So that was my thing. I really wanted to help with education. So what I did was I bought a ticket to Laos and landed in Vientiane, rented a motorcycle, and then decided to just drive around and find a village to adopt that kind of felt right or spoke to me. I was just intuitively guided. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, um, I finally found Vankuka Cham. I sat down on the steps of this um, little area where they had noodles and soups and stuff. So prior to that, I had written a letter explaining what I wanted to do in this village if I did find the village. And it said, I'd like to help with education and healthcare. And then I had it translated into Lao language because I knew that probably they wouldn't understand English. So I showed the letter to the noodle lady and she ran and got the chief of the village. They read the letter 
and they started to cry and they're like, why do you want to help us? Like, we need your help, but like, this is crazy. This is amazing. You're like, what are you doing here? (laughs) And then they they signed the letter and I gave them my whole backpack with all of the pencils and the clothes and the books that I had um, prepared for the village. And we decided to work together. And then I went back to Tokyo and had fundraisers with my friends and my poetry groups and my um, artist friends. And we raised a few hundred dollars. And then I made a huge box to send to that village. And if it, it arrived, and that's kind of how my charity started. It started really grassroots, and um, I physically created and manifested it. The Lao experience, the first trip was in like 2003, and the charity actually was registered like um, about a year later in Toronto. Are you still working with that, um, with that village? Yes. Um, I've, since I started, I've built in that village a library and a kindergarten and a computer center and have paid for several scholarships for the children who finish high school. So they, the scholarships are in Luang Prabang, which is a few hours north. And then they would become nurses or teachers. And then once they graduated, they promised me that they would go back to the village and give back one year of their life to their local community. So that's how we circulate the goodness, you know, pay it forward. So they got a free um, scholarship to study. And now they go back to their village and give back to their community. I visit them. I have them on the videos on YouTube. You can see them. There's um, the kindergarten teacher who did it, um, the one of the school teachers that, that finished the program, and they're still there in the village. And they got married and had kids, and I've known them for like 15, over 15 years now. So, and I've seen them grow, and, you know, it's there are sad stories and there are good stories. You have become such an important part of their lives. What kind of relationship have you developed with these people? first years that um, I would come back, um, I noticed that, like, there were hundreds of people gathered on the road and screaming my name when I arrived and throwing flowers at me and (laughs) (laughs) um, welcoming me with, like, rice and chicken and and ceremonies that they threw in my honor. And they would call me, like, the queen of the village or whatever. And I really felt uncomfortable. So I stopped having a physical profile there or a physical presence, but the buildings still continue the projects. And I go maybe once a year to check what's happening and update and upgrade and fix like toilets or whatever needs to be done. Um, like the water systems or the pump for the water system that I built. But I don't want to be known or seen too much because they are living daily with their struggles. And I don't want to feel like I'm the reason for anything that has changed in their village. I want them to feel like it's theirs. So a lot of Western attitudes are like self-centered or egotistical. And for me, I feel like I'm just a channel for the good work because of my art. I can sell my work and bring artists together. And then work is kind uh, my art is a channel. What is the relationship between art and that work that you do for people all over the world? I think 
art is a gateway to something bigger or greater. When I create a piece of art, it doesn't belong to me. And it's not because of me that it was created. So I shouldn't reap all the rewards from it. When I paint, I don't paint for myself. I paint for the world. So when I paint, I believe that my paintings can help a greater good in the world. And I believe in children's education. I believe in healthcare. So I, I put events together and sell my artwork. And then when I sell my artwork, I use those funds for a specific purpose, like building a hospital or building a school or even paying for one girl's education in Uganda or pre-primary school in India. So, um, for example, I had uh, several fundraisers in Toronto uh, a few years back, and those fundraisers were held with a, a bunch of talented other artists, and we'd have silent auctions and live auctions. Every event that I have, every fundraiser that I have, has a project in mind that's basically um, for children's education. And how, how do you make a living then? You, you need money for yourself, don't you? Exactly. Right. So there, um, I felt, I felt a little bit conflicted because in Toronto, there's this mentality, bigger is better and grow, grow, grow. So I was like, okay, I can go several ways with this. I can build cheeky and have rent, a phone, which means I have a lot of overhead, hire people, get salaries, you know, and then where does, how much of that money will actually go to the children or the projects that I really believe in? So I didn't want to do that. I turned Cheeky into a small charity, small but beautiful, and then it became a virtual charity. So it's just online. There's no overhead. So I have, I'm not paying any salaries. Everybody on the board of directors is, is sitting there for free, volunteering. I don't pay myself a salary. So I work full time as an art teacher in Japan, um, at a international school. And, um, and then I run the charity as a hobby and as something I truly believe in. And then I follow up on my projects and I have local partners in each country that I connect with and make sure that the money wired goes towards the project. And then they send me photos of where the money went and, um, snapshots of the receipts and I know exactly where the funds go and then once every year or two I go and check out what's happening in those countries what are the other countries I've, I've done lots of work in India in in Goa there's a pre-primary school there and a women's union and I've worked with three slums in India where um, we pick up the little children from the three slums and drive them to the school we built and they go to school all day and lunch is provided and a uniform is provided. And then the bus drives them back to the slum where they live with their families. So instead of being raised on the street until the age of six, they go to school and learn the culture of education, of, of social norms within the confines of education, because India you can have a free education from the age of six, but until six, you're living on the streets and it's very hard to go into school and be competitive with your peers if you're, you haven't been in preschool. So we built a preschool in India. Even with my school where I work now, 
we have um, fundraising bazaars and events where we raise money and send um, many clothes and boxes of toys and educational supplies to India and to Uganda and to Laos from Japan. And in Uganda, in, in India, you concentrate mostly on preschool for kids from poor families. What about Uganda? In Uganda, I've been working there since 2008 with uh, many uh, kind donors and a support team and a partner in in Kampala, Uganda, who um, runs a boys' shelter. All these boys are homeless or have lost their parents to AIDS and we pay for their education and their food and their housing. Can you tell me one story that has been the most, I don't know, moving, touching, incredible, important to you? So many things have happened in all of these countries that have been amazing and have made me cry so much. In Uganda, there was this young boy in our boys' shelter you know, you learn their stories and you try to find out as much as you can about each child. And they're all heartbreaking because they're very young boys. They're from the age of eight to like 18. And one boy's mother um, left him at, at the border of Kenya and Uganda. And she said, I'm just going to go buy some milk. I'll be right back. Just stay here and wait for me. And she never came back. And he just stayed there and cried for days and then walked and kept walking for days. And finally, um, my partner found him in, in Uganda and took him into the boys' shelter. And he's never seen his mother since. So she actually didn't have enough money, we think, to take care of him. So she just abandoned him there and lied to him and said that she was just going to buy some milk. And all of these boys have stories like this. And some of them were arrested and put into the jails and raped at the age of nine or ten, you know, for months. And they, if, they, if they're lucky enough to survive and escape, they end up on the streets. And if they're lucky enough to survive the streets, then they end up with AIDS. You know, 75% of the population in Uganda is under 26 years old. So... All of these stories are are heartbreaking. Um, and the girls, like I pay for scholarship for girls. And one year I was in Uganda and Jane, she and I had this really good connection. And I paid for all of her studies. And then when I came home a week later, she told me her mother had died in a motorcycle accident. It was very sad. You know, she had nothing. And then there were other girls where they had um, a stepmother and their stepmother hated them so much that they treated them like an animal tied to a tree and they would beat them. And these stories are very sad. How do you feel about what you do? It's like breathing. I don't feel um, anything but um, happiness, like a sense of relief when I see the good manifested that I have intended for, for the project. So once the project comes full circle, I can exhale and go, okay, that, that was good. And then I go to the next one. <laughs> and that's just how I move forward. Um, I just live a very simple life. Um, I work every day full time and I just try to do good through my charity. 
Well, what, what, what does your family think about it? Well, my husband is French, and in France we raised 10,000 euro for the water system through um, the Rotary Club, and we made a huge French proposal and asked them for funding, and then we built the water system in Laos through that. So he was a great yeah. help in that. Otherwise, he's sort of in the background. <laughs> he's an environmental engineer. And as a matter of fact, coincidentally, I met him in Laos. <laughs> oh, you did? Yep. He was building roads and, and helping uh, align Luang Prabang with the river Mekong and save kind of the nature and also build these roads um, through Polytechnique in Paris. So they sent him for a three-month three um, learning experience. And I met him on the street in Luang Prabang. I was also there in order to inaugurate the buildings that I had built there. I was only, I was 30, and he was 21. <laughs> <laughs> and we just met and just knew that we were going to, be together and then he followed me to Tokyo for a few days and then I met him in Barcelona again another time and then Paris we ended up seven years living in France he's been very supportive of the charity and so has my son and my parents I have a son who's eight um, and you know I took him to Laos to meet the children and to see what he can do as an adult in the future what's important to learn more about Sylvia and her amazing work, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. Smacznego! We're here talking about a Polish fish dish and our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two Heritage Polish cookbooks, called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or a glass of that. Today we'd like to share with you a very tasty Lenten dish, white fish and horseradish sauce. Now that we've had our fill of holiday sweets, it's time to turn our attention to Lent, which this year began on Ash Wednesday, February the 14th, which coincidentally was Valentine's Day, and it lasts 40 weekdays until Easter. The Catholic ritual of fasting and meatless meals on religious feast days was introduced to Poland about 900 AD and has had a very strong influence on Polish food traditions. Christmas Eve Vigilia, and Lent are just two times when no meat is eaten, explaining why fish has such a key role in Polish heritage cooking. In Poland... A typical Lenten meatless meal could be boiled potatoes doused with dill, melted butter, and some herring. But this dish works well with any flat white fish fillets such as sole, flounder, perch, or tilapia. When I tested this recipe for our blog, we were cautious about the intensity of the horseradish. However, we quickly discovered that the sauce was milder than expected. It was just delicious. And in fact, I spooned some of the sauce over my fresh vegetables for a little extra kick. So here we go. To feed four, you'll need one and a half pounds of fish fillets, salt, a teaspoon of vinegar, melted butter, 
plus one and a half to two cups of horseradish sauce, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Season the fish with salt and sprinkle with vinegar. Place them in a buttered baking dish and drizzle with the melted butter. By the way, you can use frozen fish fillets, but be sure to thaw them slowly and let the moisture leach out before cooking. Bake them in the oven at 400 degrees Fahrenheit, about 10 minutes. Then pour the horseradish sauce over the fillets and bake for an additional 10 or 15 minutes, depending on the thickness of the fillets. Did you know that top restaurant chefs will undercook their fish a bit so that when the plate hits your table, the fish will be 100% perfect and not overdone? So let's do the sauce. To make two cups, you'll need butter, flour, chicken broth, prepared horseradish. We just use the prepared horseradish out of a jar. It's easier than shredding your fresh roots. Add sour cream and a pinch of both sugar and salt. Melt butter in a saucepan on a low temperature and blend in the flour to make a paste. Gradually stir in the broth, stirring constantly until thickened and smooth. Stir in the horseradish and the sour cream. Add the sugar and salt to taste, and that's all there is to it. By the way, this sauce is delicious on a beef roast or a steak. Serve the fish with buttered boiled baby potatoes and your favorite vegetables with Polonaise style. That recipe is in our cookbook. And don't forget the dill. The full recipe for this dish and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the article posted on February 27th, 2017. Horseradish sauce. Horseradish. They buy it jarred, but in fact, you should grate it, right? And grating horseradish, if you've never done it, creates oh, fountains of tears. It's really difficult. It's much worse than onions. There are many ways to prevent the tears downpour. One of them is to do it under the range hood. There's also another way, which is much easier, even if you don't have the hood in, um, over your range or cooker or whatever you call it in your English language, um, which is simply to put the horseradish root in the fridge for the whole night. Um, the other option I heard is just to use very, a very cold knife. Anyway, whatever utensils you use should be very, very cold. Or do it the way my dad used to do it, meaning just take it outside. That's right. Take it outside is another option. Or put a gas mask. <laughs> this is what I saw. <laughs> I saw, uh, I don't know if it was, I think I saw a YouTube thing and it was a joke, of course. It was somebody grating horseradish uh, wearing a gas mask. So anyway, we just want to tell you that horseradish is very Polish. We eat it for Easter and uh, on many other occasions. And I remember grating horseradish and crying. In the past episodes of our podcast, we have covered a large number of stories and presented to you many amazing people. And it is our great pleasure to be able to update you on some of our interlocutors' new achievements, as well as some new developments in the stories we have featured. Well, here is the first one. We got beautiful news from Slavomir Grunberg. I'm sure you remember he is a film producer, a, um, a filmmaker from the United States of Polish and Jewish descent. 
He wrote, What Great News, an amazing documentary, Strong Island by Jans Ford, is nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary. Congrats to Jans Ford and the Strong Island team. I am proud to be a contributing director of photography at this important film. Congratulations to everybody, and we hope, Suave Grunberg, that your film is going to win an Oscar. Or maybe we'll get invited to Oscars. Yeah, that's right. Polcast at Oscars. That would be something. Many polls there. And remember Donna Urbicas, the author of the powerful book My Sister's Mother, whom we featured in one of our past episodes. The American Association of School Librarians just selected this book, My Sister's Mother, as the best book for high school and professional use. And it was selected as a best book by the public library reviewers. Congratulations, Donna. And we hope that a lot of people will find a lot of incredible information and a lot of incredible moments reading your book. You've been listening to the 51st episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For a lot of additional information, multimedia and links, please visit our website, mypolcast.com. And while you're there, please share your comments, your reactions and suggest ideas. If you know of any interesting story that we should cover on our podcast, please let us know. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app. And we leave you with one of the Scandinavian dances called Polska, which Mati, the Finnish Canadian member of Polki Village Band, talked about earlier in this episode. Thank you for listening to Polcast. <laughs>